0: So knowing the story that was coming up in our series, The Last Word, the stunning healing of the blind man, I went to Google and I typed in Thanksgiving and blind. Is there any connection? Google took me to the message board of the American Foundation for the Blind. This is a national nonprofit organization that serves over 25 million Americans with vision loss. Helen Keller, by the way, spent 40 years associated with the AFB. So on the, uh, on the message board, sure enough, here is the linkage, Thanksgiving and seeing impairment. As it turns out, appropriate for today, this post was written by a college student. I don't know if it's a she or a he, but here we go. I'm so excited. I have school this week and Monday and Tuesday of next week, then I get to go home. I'm in college for Thanksgiving break. Sounds like us. I'm so ready for a break, but next Wednesday, which is the the day after I get out, I'm having surgery on my bad eye. It's a cataract surgery, but they say it's going to be complicated and messy, so they're putting me to sleep. Usually they don't for cataract stuff, and they're going to dehydrate me for it too, kind of nervous, and it's the day before Thanksgiving. I don't like that, but it can't wait. What are you all doing for Thanksgiving break? must be from the South. There's several uh, posts here in reply. I'll not read them all. The first one is from Zoomer7, just a few minutes later. I hope your surgery goes smoothly and ask for what I'm doing on Thanksgiving, whatever I can to get away from my deranged family. (laughs) Not a lot of warm fuzzies in that post. (laughs) Here's another one from Thrill Monster. Going on vacation to Florida. Some of you may be doing the same. And then I like this one, Joe S. He's a part of the AFB, the American Foundation for the Blind Staff. We'll be sending positive thoughts and vibes for you and your surgery. Enjoy the break. I know we all look forward to having time off. Enjoy the vacation. Well put for a college community on the cusp of this holiday break. Thanksgiving and blindness, you can get there from here. The stunning saga of what we are about to read. We'll link... Thanksgiving, and blindness on the Sabbath before Thanksgiving. And so without further ado, I want to plunge into Holy Scripture. I put the title slide up just to remind you we are part of the Last Word series. As you see there, today's teaching, Shabbat Shalom. I'm in the New King James Version. Whatever, whatever translation you have is fine with me. If you didn't bring a Bible, this is one of the most dramatic healings in all of Scripture. So grab the pew Bible in front of you. And it'll be also in the New King James Version. Let's go. John chapter 9. We're just going through John. Only one more piece left before Christmas. We'll get to that right after the Thanksgiving holiday. This is John chapter 9. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. There we go. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, the faith community at the time of Christ believed that somehow suffering was linked to sin, punishment from God. If you were majorly suffering, you are obviously majorly sinning. In fact, some rabbis even suggested that prenatal sin can occur, and they used the story of Esau to prove that. So the disciples aren't asking, is there a connection between sin and suffering? They already know there is. But we want to know, was it this man or was it his parents who were the cause of his blindness? And Jesus answered in verse 3, and I praise God for Jesus' answer. Jesus said, hey, wait a minute, fellows, neither, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Isn't that great news to know? Your suffering is not at the hands of an angry God. That's why God intended, inserted it intentionally into the canon of sacred Scripture, the Old Testament, the story of Job, to remind us that most of our human suffering is directly upon the personal orders and through the personal hand of Satan himself. Jesus goes on, verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming. Oh boy, this draws us in as a generation, doesn't it? The night is coming when no one can work. We've got to do what we've got to do now before night falls. I am the light of the world. I am the water of life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Twice now, he's, he's declared himself the light of the world. And then to dramatically prove he is the light for our darkness. Here we go, verse 6. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Try to imagine yourself being the blind man for a moment. You can't see a thing, but you hear the voice of Jesus coming closer and closer until finally 13 pairs of sandals are crunched all around you in a circle. You have acute hearing. You know what's happening. Silence. And then the next thing you hear is somebody going... You hear the... You do not know what is happening next. All you know is that it's silent. You cannot see that Jesus is down with his own spitum in the mud making a concoction. Now, you know that sometimes, this often happens, when somebody comes behind you or from the side and touches you when you're not expecting it, there's an immediate response, especially if they touch you in the face. So imagine the blind person. He doesn't know what's happening and until suddenly some warm fingers touch his eyelids and he jerks back. And then he feels this oozy, oozy, grainy stuff, slime rubbed over both eyes. And then Jesus speaks. What is this? Verse, verse 7. And Jesus said to him, Now go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed, and I love this, and came back seeing. Somebody gets him. The 1,200 meters, 1.2 kilometers from where he is to that pool, somebody gets him there, and he's, as he scoops down into that fresh, cool water, begins to splash it, rubbing the grit, rubbing the, the mud, now dried in cake, rubbing his eyelids, scrubbing them, and then one eye goes open. One eye looks around. The other eye goes open. Both eyes. Can you imagine? No, you and I cannot. We cannot fathom what it would be to see light for the first time in your adult life. Full, high definition, mega, mega, mega megapixel colors. He's heard the sounds all his life, but now sounds are matched to sights. Unbelievable. Therefore, verse 8, the neighbors, because now he's, he's racing back. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, isn't this, isn't this he who sat and begged? Verse 9, And some said, Yep, this is he. Others said, "Ah, he just looks like him. He's just like him. I had a neighbor when we were in, in Coquille, Oregon, pastoring. We had a neighbor. Ended up baptizing both the neighbor and his wife. But he never wore dentures. Ever, ever. He was a fairly young man, but he just didn't wear them. He ate everything with just the gums. You know that your face eventually adapts to whatever you do. If, he, if Carl had ever put dentures in, I know I wouldn't have recognized him. You imagine a man who's grown up with little sockets here. The, the eyeballs just were never there. Suddenly you put white, white eyeballs with bright brown irises. They're not playing a game. They're not sure. Is, is, are you sure this is he? He looks like him. And he pipes up. He pipes up in verse 9. He said, I am he. In fact, in the uh, Greek, he kept piping up. Hey, wait, wait. It is me. No, no, no. It is. I am. I am. I am. I am. And therefore they said to him in verse 10, how were your eyes open? And he answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. He was blind when he left. I don't know where he went. They, verse 13, brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Dun, 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 dun. The next line. Now it was a Sabbath. Uh-oh. It was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes, and the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put clay in my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God. By the way, they know exactly who did this. Know exactly. This man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others said, Well, how could a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among the spiritual elite, among the leaders They're divided. Is he for real? Could he be? They said, verse 17, to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? We want to hear from you. And he said, he is a prophet. Ah, but the Jews didn't believe concerning him. You're not a blind man. You're just faking it. Until they called his parents of him who had received his sight, verse 19, and they asked them. Now this gets comical, almost ludicrous as this story goes. They get to the parents and they said, hey, listen, is this your boy who you say was born blind? How come he sees? His parents answered them, and their knees are knocking. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But what, by what means he now sees? We do not know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Look, he's of age. Ask him. He's old enough. Just ask him. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things, verse 22, because they feared the Jews, for the word was out. And by the way, remember Jews, code word for the leadership. Can, they're all Jews in the story. Code word for the leadership. The leadership had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he, Jesus, was Christ the Messiah, he would be put out of the synagogue. Excommunicado. You're out. Therefore, his parents said, He's of age. Ask him. Verse 24. So they called a man who was born blind and they said to him, Give God the glory. Now, this is a technical phrase. They did that to Achan. Give God the glory. Did you steal this? Did you steal that gold? Give God the glory. That means you you better do what we're asking you to do. Give God the glory. What they want him to do is say, you're right, the man didn't heal me. God healed me. I give God the glory. But he doesn't take the cue. Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. And he, the healed blind man, answered, verse 25, I love this, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a Wretch like me, I once was, but now am, was, but now I... They got... John Newton got it right out of the story. Now I see. I once was blind, but now I see. I want to note they come right after him. Verse 26, Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? I want to run through this one more time. How did he open up your eyes? They are now attempting to confuse him. And I need to insert right here a little line from Desire of Ages. I want you to see that this. You, you'll not read this in any other commentary on this story. Trust me. Put it on the screen, please. Desire of Ages. With many words, they tried to confuse him so that he might think himself deluded. Satan and his evil angels were on the side of the Pharisees and united their energies and subtlety with a man's reasoning in order to counteract the influence of Christ. They blunted the convictions that were deepening in many minds. Now, watch this. Angels of God were also on the ground to strengthen the man who had had his sight restored, end quote. I want to tell you something. If you are ever put on the spot for the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never be alone. God wants to win every time you open your mouth for him. You're not going to be there alone in that instant. The forces of heaven will surround you, and they will give to you. I tell you, Jesus said it in Luke 12, 12, and I love it from the New Living Translation. He said, while you are standing there, the Spirit of my Father will give you the words to speak. While you're standing, you don't have to have your little, little uh, crypt notes to pull out. Nothing written on your hand. Nothing. He'll give you the words. And I, I want you to note now. You will be raised to a level you could never get on your own. Watch what the angels of God do through this here blind man who takes charge of this moment. Okay, where were we? So they asked the questions in verse 26. Oh, come on. We want to hear it again. Tell us, tell us, tell us. Trying to confuse him. And he answered. Here we go, verse 27. I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Ah, do you want to become his disciples? Ooh. Then they reviled him, naturally, and said, You, it's emphatic in the Greek, you are his disciple. We are Moses' disciples. Now, verse 29 we know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he's from. Probably illegitimate birth, a little hint going on here. And then now the bar gets raised, and this man steps into the divine spotlight. The man answered, verse 30, and he said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing that you who are the leaders of Israel, you do not know where he's from, yet he's opened my eyes. Now, verse 31, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears them. Look, verse 32, since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone could open the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could not do anything. Desire of Ages. You need to see this line. Put it on the screen. The man had met his inquisitors on their own ground. His reasoning was unanswerable. The Pharisees were astonished, and they held their peace. Now, hold on. Spellbound. Spellbound. Before his pointed, determined words, for a few moments, there was silence in the court chamber, silence with unassailable logic. A man who has never seen the face of Jesus Christ steps forward and defends the incarnate word made flesh. Somebody finds his voice, verse 34, and finally they answered. And they said to him, you were completely born in sins. How would you be blind? And you are teaching us. And they cast him out, excommunicated. And then I love the next two words, verse 35, Jesus heard. I tell you what, some of you are going through a miserable time right now. Your life feels like it's unraveling in front of your very seeing eyes. I need you to note those two words. Jesus hears. Whatever it is you're going through right now, he's heard about it. And when he hears, guess what? He goes looking for you. Jesus heard. You're never going to be alone. You will never suffer alone. He's already heard about you. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, isn't that amazing? He'd, well, we happen to bump into each other? Are you kidding? Jesus went out to find the blind man healed. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? The man has never seen him in his life. But the acute hearing gift of the seeing impaired means he the vo- recognizes the voice instantly. This is my healer. Jesus says to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who was talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. He fell down and worshipped him. For when it comes time to give thanks, what else can you do? But bow down and worship the God who has already given you so much. And so we're here. But What does this have to do with Shabbat Shalom? That's the Hebrew greeting. Sabbath peace be upon you. What's it have to do? Ah, Craig Keener, the New Testament commentator, points out that John has intentionally taken two miracles in his gospel. One we've already been to, John 5, the healing of the, the invalid at the Pool of Bethesda. You remember that? He's taken these two miracles, and he has nearly made them identical for a point. Watch how similar these two miracles are. I couldn't believe this when I saw his list. In both accounts, okay, so John 5, John 9, invalid, blind man. In both accounts, the history, the case history is stated first. This man had been been lame for 38 years. He'd been blind all his life. In both accounts, Jesus takes the initiative. Neither one comes to him. Jesus goes to the the sick one. In both accounts, there is a pool that is linked to healing, Uh, Bethesda and Siloam. In both accounts, Jesus heals on the Sabbath. In both accounts, Jesus is accused of violating the Sabbath. In both accounts, the authorities ask the one healed who healed him. And in both accounts, the man doesn't know where or who Jesus is. And in both accounts, Jesus finds the man and invites him to believe. Now the accounts change. Because in one account, Jesus implies the relationship between sin and suffering. You've got to quit doing that sin or it will kill you. Something worse will come on you. And in the other one, he says there is no relationship at all between sin and suffering. In one account, the man goes to the Jews. In the other account, the Jews throw the man out. But both accounts end with Jesus declaring he must do the works of the Father. What's happening here? John is intentionally merging these two miracles to put the seventh-day Sabbath front and center These two miracles are not about Jesus being the Lord of our bodies, though that truth is truly true. This instead is to teach us that Jesus, the Creator, is Lord of the Sabbath and that the Jews who considered themselves very orthodox Sabbatarians like you and I consider ourselves have gotten the Sabbath all wrong. Question, have we gotten the Sabbath all wrong too? Sigvi Tonstad, a Norwegian. He's a Seventh-day Adventist minister and a Seventh-day Adventist physician and a New Testament scholar. And by the way, he presently is enjoying a joint appointment at Loma Linda University in the School of Religion. He is associate professor. In the School of Medicine, he's an assistant professor. So he's an MD, a minister, and a Bible scholar. He's written what for me is the most profound book I have read on the Sabbath. Title of his book, The Lost Meaning of the Seventh Day. And wouldn't you know it, Andrews University Press has published that book. You've got to get that book. You must read that book. He writes as a poet. He writes as a scholar. He writes as an exegete. So I'm going to go to Tonstad. Before I sit down, I'm going to go to him several times. He spends a chapter drawing on these two Sabbath healings in John. Notice where he goes with his probing exploration. You have a study guide today. These quotes are all in it so that you can keep the quotes. I'm going to put them on the screen right now. Let's go. A wonderful thing has happened. He's writing. A wonderful thing has happened in both Sabbath healings, John 5 and John 9. But the body language of Jesus' critics loudly states that people in the audience had better restrain their wonderment. Hey, guys, you're getting too excited. Under normal circumstances, they should be crowding around the restored cripple excitedly, showering him with questions. Hey, how does it feel to walk again after 38 years? They should descend on the blind man like reporters at a press conference. What's it like to see for the first time? But this is not what happens. The spirit of awe and gratitude that might be expected is drowned out by the narrator's explanatory remark that had happened on the Sabbath. All of a sudden, the air is chilled by a logic that takes no joy in what has taken place. The passage is no longer soaring aloft on the wings of hope, but has plummeted to the ground with a decided thud, says Karen Pitcock Lester, end quote. Have we done the same to the Sabbath? In our hands, in our homes, this day that was meant for soaring aloft on the wings of hope, have we turned it into a day that has plummeted to the ground with a decided Thud. We who are so right about the Sabbath day, are we right about the Sabbath way? You see, the Jews had the day down pat, but they blew the way. How about us? Just turn two turn pages, three, four, to John 5, because we're, the, the, the miracles are linked, so we go back to the other miracle, to catch this line from Jesus. This is John 5, verse 16, after he's healed the invalid at the pool of Bethesda on that Sabbath. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. Can you believe that? They're going to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now, verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Now, Tonstad writes an essay this summer in the Adventist Review where he, he, goes, he goes deeper with these two miracles. Uh, it's a great piece. I'm going to put a few lines from the essay on the screen for you now, driving his point home. It seems, this is the same Tonstad, it seems as if Jesus threw down the gauntlet by publicly ignoring Jewish Sabbath regulations. Two of the 39 prohibitions in existence at Christ's time specifically dealt with carrying a pallet. He said, hey, take up your mat and walk. And kneading dough. A woman was not allowed to mix dough and make it, you know, you're not allowed to do that. And so he did that with with, uh, spit and dirt. He's kneading dough. But we miss the depth of the struggle, Tonstad writes, if we assume that Jesus was merely picking a fight with Jewish leaders over proper Sabbath observance. It is, now hold on, it is not what they see that creates controversy. It is rather what they don't see. This is, this is spot on. Clearly, they see the mat and the mud, but they do not see the man. Much worse, they do not see God, end quote. Jesus says, hey, 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 my father has been working continually till now. And, yes, we both work on the seventh-day Sabbath. It's okay because he works, I work. It's okay. In fact, Jesus, remember in chapter 9, Jesus says, I need to do the works of my Father now because night is coming, and then we can't work at all. Well, how true for you and me. Night is coming. We can't work. It's okay to do it on the seventh day. Tonstad goes on. On one level, Jesus' active imitation of the Father stands in contrast, this is poetic, to their tight-lipped obedience to a commandment frozen in time. Tight-lipped, you can see them. We're going to keep this day if it kills us tight-lipped commitment to obedience to a commandment frozen in time. But on a deeper level, Jesus' emphasis on the Father working stands in contrast to their view of God resting. In the minds of his critics, the memory of creation is the basis for Sabbath holiness. God rested, so to be holy, we must rest. Jesus, however, has the audacity to connect the Sabbath and working, making this connection again and again, and there are the references. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, the Jews have reduced the Sabbath to a day of of inactivity. But the Word who created the universe, when He is made flesh, He comes down to transform the Sabbath from inactivity to proactivity. It's not to rest. It's to work. Because night is coming. We have to get it done now. Which explains why Tonstad back in his book now, he writes this, and this is the final quotation from Tonstad. The Jewish religious system that is reflected in the Sabbath conflicts reduces God to a distant player in human affairs. Beyond keeping the universe on course, that's all he does, no initiative seems imminent on God's part. The Sabbath has come to epitomize the stalemate anticipating the view that, and this is from their writings at the time, if Israel kept the Sabbath properly, even for one day, the son of David would come. If we would just Do it right. Jesus will come back. Now the provocative conclusion. Here he goes. Maintenance of the created order will not suffice when the created order is threatened by disillusion and when human beings are in the thrall of disease and death. Rather than waiting for human beings to break the deadlock by impeccable Sabbath observance, Jesus brings the Father's compassion to view on the Sabbath. In the words of the great English preacher G. Campbell Morgan, there can be no rest for God while humanity is suffering. This week there was a fire on the edge of our campus and a little apartment went up in smoke. Eleven people are homeless and one little three-year-old girl is dead. Do you think God is resting now? How did Morgan put it? There can be no rest for God while humanity is suffering. Jesus can't wait until tomorrow, that would be Sunday or Monday or Tuesday, because he's magnifying the original message of the Sabbath in the context of human suffering. That's what's happening. Ministering to the person in need, reaching out to heal and to restore, lies at the heart of the divine character and mission. End quote. Ladies and gentlemen, of all people on earth, Sabbatarians who like the father and his son hold sacred the seventh day of the week of all people in the world we must be working in a world going up in flames we must be working doing the works of our Lord even on the day he is Lord of we must work for the night is quickly coming and we won't be able to work again if you were to tweet Jesus' teaching in these two critical miracles, his teaching about the truth of the Sabbath, if you were to tweet it, two words would enable your tweet to tell the truth. Two words. I'm going to put the two words on the screen. This is the truth of these two miracles rest works. Rest works. When it comes to the Sabbath, rest works when the Lord of the Sabbath is resting in the tomb, the Lord of salvation is still at work. Rest works. You don't stop your mission for the day of rest. Rest works. When it comes to the Sabbath, rest works. You want to rest? Then work. Because if rest rests, how many others will go up in flame because we didn't get there in time? I sat down yesterday with Bruce Stover, who's the fire chief for Orinoco Township and uh, the village of Berrien Springs. sat down in his office. I said, Chief, how are you guys doing? He said, uh, Pastor, some of my men, it was tough when they had to go in to get that little body. He says, thank you for your prayers, the prayers of the community. I was out running Tuesday morning early. Heard those sirens racing by something bad in and Springs. We had prayer together. But you know what, ladies and gentlemen? Prayer's not enough. Prayer's not enough. By the way, do you know living next door, two elders of ours, Jeanette and Erling Snorensen, their house, by a, by a backdraft, fire sucked into the system when the transformer blew. They're out of their house for two months now. They're in the dormitory right now. Our own elders. Praying is fine, but it's not enough. We have to do more than praying. Because rest works. That's the truth of the Sabbath. Rest works. Even on the Sabbath, it works. In fact, rest will go on working until the family is comforted. The housing is restored, clothing is replaced, and food is provided because when Christ is your Lord, rest works i 've been proud of this campus that is already mobilized to respond. I want to move from the theoretical now to the practical, and then I 'm sitting down. May I put this on the screen for you? Three ways you can respond. take a tithe envelope right now and write on it fire. The Red Cross is managing all funding for these families. Do you know that that little body needs to be transported to North Carolina and the family doesn't have money for, to get the body to North Carolina your gift will help the family in their grieving just on, the, on your tithe envelope, write in the word fire, the next line is campus ministry, you're a student at Andrews University, Past Chaplain Jose sitting right over there in that the campus ministry's office they're, 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 they're ground, ground control for all of student responses, drop by you want to drop by something physical, you want to drop by something financial, you may Neighbor-to-neighbor, neighbor, that's N neighbor to N. Neighbor-to-neighbor, that's our big community service center right out here on the highway. They're also Union Station for our response. You can drop by. You've got some furniture that you would like a family to have as they find new quarters to live? See neighbor-to-neighbor. Neighbor. But, ladies and gentlemen, rest works. It's not enough to pray. There are people who need healing, and you and I know the healer, and in his name... We can respond. We must respond because rest really does work.